In Hiroshima, it was sunny when the bomb dropped. That sunshine, that gorgeous blue sky, was of course the kiss of death for the population, because it was simple weather which decided which city would vanish that day. Flying far ahead of the bomber, in Olagay, was another plane, straight flush, which was there as weather reconnaissance. In fact, there were three weather planes that morning, all flying to different cities, Hiroshima, Kokura and Nagasaki, all taking weather reports and reporting back to Enolagay. Straight flush was assigned to check out Hiroshima, and as she flew over the city on that bright morning, triggering the air raid sirens, they were able to report to Enolagay that all was clear and bright. Had the city been lucky enough to be obscured by cloud that morning, then Enola Gay would have headed to the next city on her target list. But no, the sun was shining on Hiroshima on that morning. The air raid sirens went off when straight flush was spotted approaching the city, as they should. But she posed no danger. Well, no bombing danger. She was simply there to check the weather and seal the city's fate. And so she passed over Hiroshima and the all-clear was sounded. That's right, the all-clear sounded. Because how could anyone down there know that this silver plane had given the nod to another silver plane up there in the sky, just an hour behind, and that this other plane was now roaring towards Hiroshima and would be there within the hour? Within the hour, with the all-clear sounding, and sending everyone back into the streets. The mission to drop the first atomic bomb in war was highly secret. Even most of the crew of the Enolagay weren't quite sure what they were carrying in that bomb bay. They knew it was something big, but no one had said to them the words atomic or nuclear. Tibbets, the pilot, had been forbidden from doing so and he only told the boys what they had on board once they were safely on their way. So even though most people on Tinian didn't know what this bomb was, they knew it was special and so lots of people had jostled to have the chance to scribble a message on it for the Japanese. One witness saw, written in chalk on the side of the bomb, a present for the souls of the Indianapolis. The Indianapolis, of course, was a massive American ship which had been sunk by the Japanese, leaving hundreds of American sailors burned to death or drowned or left in the water to be eaten by sharks. In the book Indianapolis by Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladich, it's written that the sea was so crammed with sharks who were drawn there, no doubt, by the blood of the dead and the dying, that the surviving sailors, as they trod water, could feel their bare feet walking along the backs of the sharks. Here's an extract from a review of the book in the Times. So thick were the schools of sharks that the men felt as if they were walking on their backs. They were, quote, a deadly horde twisting like a cyclone, just scant feet below. Sometimes they would come close, like gentle, curious giants, nosing up to the men and staring at them with their blank eyes. The next moment they would attack. 
the book Shockwave, Countdown to Hiroshima by Stephen Walker, which I used a lot in this podcast episode, points out that as the bomb was being prepared and as this message about the Indianapolis was being scrawled on the side of the bomb, the mangled and burned bodies of the men of the Indianapolis were still being fished out of the sea less than a thousand miles away. So yes, the nature of the bomb, nicknamed of course Little Boy, was secret. And yet, as the Enola Gay prepared for takeoff, as this secret, strange bomb was loaded into the bomb bay, the media arrived. Excited journalists ran about and flashbulbs popped and the crew were jostled and shoved into position, arranged for photographs. The author Stephen Walker described it like this. It was like some kind of Hollywood premiere. There were motion picture cameramen, there were photographers and popping flashbulbs, and a crowd of people standing around and right in the middle of it all, the great silver shining movie star bomber dazzling under the lights. The captain Tibbetts later said, I expected to see MGM's lion walk to the apron or the Warner's logo to light up the sky. It was crazy. The journalists were allowed to wander around the plane. They weren't allowed on it, of course, but they could have a little poke around it. And one of the crew who saw them all near the plane was very thankful that he'd ordered the plane to be cleaned earlier that day because the cleaning crew had found and tactfully removed six boxes of condoms and two pairs of silk knickers. And if little, shall we say, oddities like condoms and knickers had been removed from Enola Gay, when the crew finally boarded for the mission, they carried some odd things on board themselves. Robert Schumard, the assistant flight engineer, had a lucky ragdoll, which he carried on every mission. Another had his Brooklyn Dodgers cap and a medal of the Virgin Mary. Captain Tibbetts was less sentimental, carrying his various pipes and cigars and tobacco. He also needed a matchbox, of course, to light all those things, yes. But there was another matchbox tucked into his flight suit, and it didn't contain matches. It held cyanide capsules, one for each crew member, just in case the Enoligi was shot down and her crew captured. And so the Enola Gay took off for the runway at 10am. Behind her were the great artiste carrying measuring equipment and also the plane later named Necessary Evil who would be taking film and photo of the bomb. Strangely, Necessary Evil had no name at the time of the bombing so she was just known by her call sign which was the (laughs) charming Dimples 91. So Enola, the artist and Dimples were off. Once in the air, everyone had their own duties, of course, but one man had a job guaranteed to make you sweat. He had to arm the atomic bomb, which was currently tucked snug into the bomb bay. Little boy was not armed at takeoff, just in case, just in case there had been too many incidents of bombers crashing on takeoff, so it was judged best not to have this new, frightening bomb ready to pop just at that particular risky moment. 
So it was during flight that Deke Parsons had to squeeze into the Bombay and over the mad roaring of the wind and with nothing below his feet but the Bombay doors connects the various wires and plugs and start getting little boy ready. The final step in arming the bomb was not to be completed until they were about one hour from target. When this was finally done, another crew member wrote in his logbook, We are loaded. The bomb is now alive. It's a funny feeling knowing it's in back of you. Knock on wood. Enola Gay approaches the city and they spy their target. Just as Straight Flush had promised, the air was clear and they could see the grids of the streets, the winding of the rivers and the curving of the hills which surround Hiroshima. This clear sky meant they saw their target easily. A distinctive T-shaped bridge with one minute to go, Tibbets reminds everyone to put on their dark goggles. The sky was clear of clouds, but it was also clear of fighter planes. No one was coming up to fight off Enola Gay. She could do as she pleased that morning. The T-shaped bridge speeds towards them, the Bombay doors clank open, and little boy gets his first glimpse of the city he's about to destroy. It's now 8.15am. Some people saw Enola Gay drop the bomb and incredibly live to tell the tale. When I was in a bunker in Budapest, I saw a painting by a Hiroshima survivor which shows the brilliant blue sky of the city on that morning. And in the top left of the picture, there's a black shape. It looks like a stick, a twisted or broken black stick suspended in the blue air. And that is the Enola Gay finally over Hiroshima, ready to drop the bomb at 8.15. And it must have seemed strange to those who looked up and spotted the plane in the sky, that solitary plane, because when an air raid is in progress, you have hundreds of bombers flooding the sky. Hundreds of bombers dropping thousands of bombs. But this, this was one single plane, and it dropped one single bomb. And what harm could one single bomb do? Having dropped the bomb, Tibbets immediately turned the plane right. They had 44 seconds to get away. 44 seconds until detonation. 44 seconds before the shockwave rose up and hit them. As Enola Gay dropped her bomb, so the great artiste flying behind her dropped its measuring equipment and canisters with parachutes attached. They too shed their load and then immediately peeled away. According to Stephen Walker's book, some people on the ground saw these parachutes falling out of the sky and they cheered because they thought it meant the crew had ejected and so the enemy plane must have been shot down. As Enola Gay and the great artiste flew hard to escape, dimples hung back 19 miles away with her cameras ready, pointed down at Hiroshima. Even though Enola Gay was 11 miles away when detonation happened, 
The white light from the bomb still filled the plane, and then the shockwave rose up and grabbed them. Bob Caron shouted, Holy Moses, here it comes! And the shaking was so violent, some of the crew thought they were under attack. But Tibbets kept the plane flying away and they escaped. Let me read here from Stephen Walker's book. At this point, the bomber was still travelling directly away from the city. Only Bob Caron in the tail could see it. He had removed his goggles and was staring through his windscreen in amazement. Boiling up from the ground was a spectacular and terrifying mushroom-shaped cloud, at least a mile wide, with a fiery blood-red core. It was climbing and expanding at an astonishing rate, a monstrous, angry, purple-grey mass of turbulence, punching up into the skies at almost ten miles a minute. Beneath it, Hiroshima had completely disappeared. Everything down there was burning. Thick black smoke covered the entire city, rolling out into the surrounding foothills and into the valleys like lava spilling from a volcano. Fires were springing up everywhere like flames, Karen said later, shooting out of a bed of coals. It was an awesome, terrible sight. He struggled to describe it over the intercom and for the wire recorder. Holy Moses, what a mess, he cried. Tibbets told him to count the fires. I said, count them? Hell, I gave up when they were about 15. They were coming too fast to count. The book goes on to say, quoting Caron, I can still see it, he said years later, that mushroom and that turbulent mass. It was a peep into hell. Quoting again from Stephen Walker's book, Shockwave, The Countdown to Hiroshima, he talks about the scientists and the great artists who were desperately trying to film and photograph the mushroom cloud. And one of them, Harold Agnew, noted that the, the colours in the cloud kept changing. The cloud contained blue, yellow, green, red and salmon pink. It had every colour in the world up there, said Don Albury, the artist's co-pilot. It was beautiful. But Robert Schumard, Enola Gay's assistant engineer, saw no beauty in it. There was nothing but death in that cloud, he said. All those Japanese souls ascending to heaven. Down in Hiroshima, the firestorm was starting. We covered the hideous, uh, almost unimaginable effect of firestorms in the podcast two weeks ago. So that's what was now starting to happen down there. For the crew of the Enola Gay, however, they were flying back to Tinian to a huge party. Pies, hot dogs, beef and salami sandwiches and fruit cocktail was being prepared, and the beer and lemonade was on ice. A programme for the festivities was typed out. Free beer party today, 2pm. Today, 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 today. For all men of the 509th Composite Group, four bottles of beer per man, no ration card needed. Lemonade for those who do not care for beer. All-star softball game, 2pm. Jitterbug contest, hot music, novelty acts. Surprise contest, you'll find out. Extra added attraction, blonde, vivacious, curvaceous starlet, direct from... question mark. Prizes, good ones too. And ration-free beer. Food galore by Perry and Co. Caterers. 
special movie will follow at 19.30. It's a pleasure in Technicolor with Sonia Henney and Michael O'Shea. Who's to say they didn't deserve a party? Hadn't they just brought the world's worst conflict to a quicker end? Hadn't they just saved the lives of all the Americans who'd otherwise have had to invade Japan? Hadn't they saved Japan from being carved up and half handed over to the Soviets? Hadn't they made sure that they'd never, at time of writing, be a nuclear war as they'd shown the world and all future nuclear powers just how dreadful the bomb was? That's what some say. Others say differently. Others say it was unnecessary. It was an atrocity. Make up your own minds. A slightly shorter podcast than usual this week because I'm losing my voice. It's going very croaky. Perhaps you can hear that. So let me finish up by reminding you you can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook at Nuclear Britain. And let me thank everyone who supports my podcast through Patreon. My latest patron uh, is Sarah LeClaire, who signed up uh, this week. Thank you, Sarah. I do appreciate your support. And I also want to thank Michelle B., Ian McIdall, Lainey Peterson, Tony Newman, Ben Taylor and Jonathan Abelins. Please do take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo if you want to donate to my podcast. Or you could also help me by spreading the word about the podcast if you enjoy it and leaving me a review on iTunes. Thank you, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. I'll be back next week, hopefully with a much clearer, perkier voice. Bye for now.